Well, I am glad you're here today, and I hope that it is a blessing for you. I will tell you, going into this morning's sermon, I'm probably going to refer to other scriptures outside the scripture we're looking at, probably more than I uh, usually do. Well, absolutely more than I usually do. And so if you're taking notes on the app, there's a box down at the bottom. If you want to put extra notes in there or things that I referenced there to look up later and read, you can certainly do that. Or if you're taking notes on paper, just be ready to write because we're going to look at a lot of things today pretty quickly. Uh, Let me just remind you, we are in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and these are all first-generation Christians. They've all come to know Christ as their Savior. The Apostle Paul is writing them this letter in answer to questions that they have, as well as to respond to them for things that he has heard about them and some of their behaviors. Now, he just got through in chapters 8 and 9. Today, we're going to look at chapter 10. He just got through in chapters 8 and 9 talking about eating meat offered to idols, And he talked about how uh, some of them uh, were, uh, while they realized that these idols now are not real gods, it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to them, but some of them were still going to the temples of the idols and eating with others, and it was just really confusing. They were really first-generation Christians. Keep in mind, these people did not have a copy of the New Testament, okay? Uh, It was being written during this time, and, and so they were trying to figure this thing out. But they were using their freedom maybe to continue dabbling in some idol worship while believing they could also follow Christ. They came from a culture uh, that uh, had many deities, and so many of them were just trying to figure out, now if I follow Jesus and he becomes my savior, if I put my faith and trust in him, uh, then do I still, can I still worship other gods, or how does that all work? Now they were certainly learning about idols, being anything embraced, followed, or worshiped other than God through Christ. I think sometimes we get this impression that idolatry, uh, the definition of idolatry is to go in somewhere and have a a, a gold or wooden or stone uh, deity of some kind, and we go and worship that thing, and that's idolatry. Well, that is idolatry, but the definition is much wider than that. And the definition basically, and we'll talk about it later, but the definition basically is anything that comes before God. Now, the church at Corinth had been blessed tremendously. This is a church that Paul had founded. Uh, He was the church planter there, and it was growing in numbers. It was growing in spiritual understanding and maturity. People were growing in Christ. Being founded and discipled by the apostle Paul was a pretty big deal. I mean, you know, having an apostle to plant your church and be the main discipler, that's a pretty sweet deal. Paul's warning, however, in in chapter 10 is that God may take away his blessing because of the church's sinful behavior. Now, I think that's a good word for us today. Fog, Fellowship of Grace, has been blessed over this past year and really over the past 13 and a half, is that right? 13 and a half years, yeah. 13 and a half years, I kind of get confused sometimes. Uh, that we've been uh, a church. We've been blessed tremendously. In this last year, people have been saved. Uh, many people have been baptized. Uh, people who are new Christians as well as older Christians are being discipled. Our ministries are having impact uh, here locally and around the world. God has increased our resources. He has increased our facilities for ministry. He has increased many, many, many things in our church, and he's blessed it tremendously. But I would say every church that is being blessed should take heed to Paul's warning. While God is currently blessing us, is it possible that he would take that blessing away if we embrace sinful ways? And the answer is, of course, yes, as we will see. Folks, God is selective to those whom he blesses. 
When I get together with other church planters and we talk about planting church and we talk about, well, you know, they say, well, why is Fellowship of Grace going? You know, 85% of new churches die in the first five years. Why is Fellowship of Grace still going and still growing after all this time? And we say, well, we, we, we handle things like this. We do things like this. We try to follow the Bible. We do this and this, you know, all these things. And then at the end of the conversation, we always go, but you know what? It's just a hand of God. I mean, this isn't a man-made thing. God's just doing his thing, and we're trying to stay out of his way, to be honest. Uh, that's really the answer. So God is selective in whom he blesses, but God is blessing us. Now, God warns in the book of Revelation to churches who did not deal with their sin that he would do certain things. He used words like he would remove their candlestick. He would spew them out of his mouth. You see, his hand of blessing can be removed by our very behavior. So if we want to continue being blessed by God, we must listen to this warning. We really need to pay attention to this. In fact, if you remember last week, and if you weren't here, you can hear that uh, sermon on our website or on our app. Our uh, website is fogkc.com. At the very end of chapter 9, Paul says this concerning himself. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And as we shared last week, Paul wasn't talking about being disqualified from heaven. He wasn't talking about losing his salvation. He was talking about being disqualified from ministry, no longer having a usefulness to God's kingdom, uh, no longer having God's blessing on his uh, ministry. That's what he was talking about. And so today we're going to talk about overcoming idolatry and sinfulness. Paul's going to refer back to some Old Testament examples. And, and to be honest, when you first read these on the surface, they're a little bit hard to understand. But he's going to talk about how God dealt with the nation of Israel because these are precursors to how God is now dealing with the church. He's actually going to say, listen, God did these things in the nation of Israel so that we could have an example. The very purpose of him dealing with them this way is so that we could look back and understand it. And remember, as we talk about all the time, the resurrection is the central point of history. Everything before the resurrection leads up to the resurrection, and everything after the resurrection points back to it. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center of all history. And so we're going to see here that Paul is going to talk about these Old Testament things and how we can learn some very good lessons and perhaps change some things about the way we're doing life, if we will just simply pay attention. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll come back and de deconstruct it a little bit and see what it is that Paul's trying to help us understand. He says, For I do not want you to become unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we see here that Paul uses the nation of Israel as an example to the church at Corinth uh, for us. And he basically says, here's an example of God's blessings in Christ. They might think they weren't in Christ yet, but we'll see that they were. Okay, Paul uses the nation of Israel as an example to the church at Corinth and for us. He says the word in that first part of the scripture, uh, he says it five times. Let's look back at verses one through four and pay attention to this word all. It says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now he uses this uh, uh, word all so many times because he wants us to see that God dealt with them collectively. He dealt with them collectively. Now, we, uh, some people say, well, God doesn't deal with us collectively anymore. He deals with us individually. Well, for our uh, salvation, uh, certainly God deals with us in an individual way. Uh, when it comes to your personal salvation, uh, it, it's up to each one of us to understand that we are a sinner, to understand that we can't do anything about our sin, and that Jesus came, God sent his son Jesus to come to the earth, to die on the cross, uh, to pay for our sins. And by putting our faith and trust in him and him alone and what he did on the cross, we can know God through his son, Jesus Christ. We can be saved from our sins. We can be in the family of God. But while God deals with us as our salvation individually, I can't do anything to save you, you can't do anything to save me, God does still deal with us in collectives. And the main way in the New Testament God deals with us as a collective is through the church, the body of Christ. We are uh, his presence here on the planet, his hands and feet to the world. It is up to us to be seen by the world as Christ, not as, as Jesus literally, but as his ministry to the world, okay? And so in this passage, he talks about being under the cloud. He said they, uh, they were under the cloud. Well, what does that mean? Well, that represents God's guidance. There was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day that gave them guidance. In Exodus 13, 21, the Bible says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The reality is God gave them guidance, and God gives us guidance too. It says they passed through the sea. Well, that represents God's emancipation or salvation. Parting the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army was in pursuit of God's people. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the, the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So God is, Paul is saying here, God gave them salvation and emancipation. He, he brought them out of the land of Egypt and he gives us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. 
says they were baptized into Moses. Now what that represents is unity under Moses as their leader. Spiritual unity is always very important. Uh, it's not that we are all have to be exactly the same about everything, but we have to have a united front uh, to follow Christ and do his mission on the earth. And here he says they were baptized into Moses because he, he wants us to see that uh, the nation of Israel all got this wonderful blessing of following their leader together in a way of unity. When it says he gave them spiritual food and spiritual drink, it represents God's provision. He gave them manna that fell from heaven and water during the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You can look at Exodus chapter 16 to see that story. Then he says they drank from the spiritual rock, which represents Christ's presence and power in the nation of Israel. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. What Paul's saying here, folks, is we see clearly that God was providing and saving and guiding and unifying and giving provision to the nation of Israel through the pre-incarnate, the pre-incarnate presence of Jesus. What a great blessing. Christ was blessing the nation of Israel. And he's saying, guys, this is an example. It's just like us. God is blessing us. God is blessing us with provision. God is blessing us by providing us salvation through his son, Jesus. God is giving us guidance. God is giving us spiritual unity. God is blessing us just like the nation of Israel. And with God's blessing like this, what could possibly go wrong? Well, <laughs> he goes on to give an example of God's judgment. Things did go wrong. Things went really wrong. Look at verse 5. He says, nevertheless, so in spite of all these blessings from God, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He was not pleased. In fact, he was not pleased with all of them except Caleb and Joshua. The rest he was not pleased with. We see, after Moses begs for God's forgiveness for the nation of Israel, he says, yes, they've been sinful. We've been sinful, God. They've, they've practiced idolatry. They have put things before you. God, please, please forgive them. And I want you to see God's response to that in Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 24. It says, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. They get forgiveness. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. You see, the nation of Israel, folks, forfeited God's blessing because of their behavior. They gave it up. In spite of all the ways God was blessing them, they simply forfeited God's blessings. Oh, they were forgiven. 
Do you remember the first part? Yes, God forgave them, but they were still disqualified. Numbers 14, 16 says, it is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. He's allowed them to die there. See, folks, while God wants to bless us, he will not be forced to bless us ever. He is not obligated and we are not entitled to his blessing. Hear that. I'm going to say that again. Hear that. He is not obligated and we are not entitled to his blessing. He gives it freely out of mercy and grace and love. And we are the undeserved recipients when he blesses us. Now in a church our size, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who are practicing outward sin that may disqualify them as an individual from being blessed by God and from being used by God. But I pray as a collection, we do not practice sin to the point of being disqualified as a church and God remove his blessing from us. Now what were they doing that was so bad? What can you do that's so bad that God would say, you want to go your way? Fine, I'm going to let you. I'm just going to take my hand off you and let you do your thing and suffer the consequences for it. What would be so bad? Well, here Paul tells us, he gives a warning to the church against desiring and practicing evil. Look again at verses 6 through 11. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Paul is sharing this as an example for us, for us to avoid embracing idolatry and evil of every kind. The first thing it said they did was they were craving sin. They were craving sin. What that means is they were desiring sin more than they were desiring God. Numbers 11.4, you see God's warning to Israel for desiring evil. This is idolatry, folks, to desire the world more than him. And it's not just that, you know, hey, I've got a, a golden Buddha and I'm going to sit in front of it and pray. It's not just that. It's anything you love more than him. You love watching TV more than you love him, you're an idolater. You love your family more than you love him, you're an idolater. I know it's going to get me in trouble. You love the chiefs more than you love him, you're an idolater. Now, you can love all those things, folks. You can enjoy watching television. You can enjoy the chiefs, as I do. You can certainly enjoy your family 
But when you put them at a higher level of love and devotion than you do uh, God himself and his son Jesus Christ, folks, we are committing idolatry. That's what they were doing. They were, putting, they were not only committing in the brazen type of idolatry, but also what I just talked about. So they were craving this evil. They were wanting it. They were desiring it. Then it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, that sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? Well, no, it's not. This is actually a quote from Exodus 32.6. These folks were involved in actual idolatry, worshiping idols, and, and involved in all kinds of sexual immorality and all kinds of orgies and promiscuity in front of this idol. And because of it, 23,000 people died by plague because of God's judgment. God's people were marrying pagans and and bringing all kinds of sin into uh, his people. And in Numbers 25, God brought that judgment on them. You see, they were disqualified from usefulness. They were disqualified from God's blessing. And he says, we must not put Christ to the test. Now, the nation of Israel was constantly putting God to the test. They were testing God's patience. They would push him as far as they possibly could. And right before, I guess they assumed that he might destroy them completely, they stepped back and repented. But then they would do it again. And it's just like a child. When you, when you tell a child, hey, this is the line. Don't cross it. And, and they, what do they do? They run to it and they look at it and they look at you and they, okay, is this okay? Is this okay? What about that? Oh, no, that's not. Oh, and they're, they're always constantly just playing with the line, right? Well, that's because we as human beings, we ask the wrong question. We constantly ask God, and we might not ask this out loud, but in our actions, we ask the question, God, how much can I get away with before you stop me? How much can I get away? How much can I do before somehow you make this private thing public? How much can I do, God, and get away with before it destroys my life? It's the wrong question, folks. We should never ask the question, how much can we get away with? The right question is, how can I be more like Jesus? How can I reflect Christ in a bigger and better way? How can my behavior exemplify him instead of some line that is right before I get smote by Jesus? That's the right question. And these are some serious things. They put God to the test constantly. They were committing all kinds of sexual immorality and, and idolatry. But there's another thing that they do in there, and I hope you caught it. They were grumbling. This means unwarranted dissatisfaction. Unwarranted dissatisfaction. They're grumbling about it. They're complaining about things. They were whining. In fact, you see it in Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, Numbers 14, Numbers 16, Numbers 17. They were constantly complaining and griping. They were dissatisfied about everything that God was blessing them in, and then they were talking about it. I think it's something for us to think about that grumbling here is tied to worldliness, sexual immorality, and idolatry. It's in the same group. Folks, grumbling's not a good thing. I asked somebody this morning as they came into the church, I said, hey, how are you doing today? She said, I can't complain. I said, perfect sermon for you. Can't complain, that's awesome. 
Now, we may think complaining is no big deal, folks, but God thinks it is. God thinks it is. And by the way, teach your children not to complain. Just as a very brief side note, man, teach your kids not to whine about stuff. Seriously. Uh, when they get old enough to ask for things, I remember uh, one of my daughters, uh, not the one that attends church here, but one of my daughters, uh, uh, she just whined about everything. I want, I want this, I want that. You know, and, and finally one day I just said, you know what, from now on, if you whine about something, whatever it is, you're not getting it. Doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not gonna give you whatever you ask for if you ask for it that way. Now, if you'll ask for that a different way, I will give you as much as I can and bless you as much as I can. And you know what? It, it like broke her. She's smart. She knows she's going to get either nothing if she keeps whining or, and I had to really kind of be, you know, uh, very giving for a while and help her to see that things are different when she doesn't whine. But you can break your kids of that. Teach your kids early on not to grumble and complain and whine about things. Paul then begins to mention how God deals with this kind of behavior. He brings up serpents. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 and 6, it says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. They were grumbling, complaining. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Then it says he sent the destroyer. They were destroyed by the destroyer. What does that mean? Well, in Numbers chapter 16, verse 49, it said that 14,700 people were killed by the destroyer. It's the angel of death. Here God executes the complainers. You think he doesn't think it's a big deal to grumble and complain against him and God's leaders? He executed 14,700 of them. So if we desire worldliness above Christ and his righteousness, if we seek out sexual immorality and we fill our lives with complaining and grumbling, Paul is saying, folks, expect the same response from God that the nation of Israel got. God did these things to give us an example. God did these things to warn us to not be this way so that God won't have to teach us a lesson so that God won't have to take his hand of blessing off us. So we as human beings, we generally respond with, okay, cool, I'll just be righteous. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna receive God's judgment or God's discipline, so I'll just be righteous. I'll just never fall into those traps again like the nation of Israel did, and I'll just never do that. In fact, I would never do that, right? Well, then Paul gives a warning against being arrogant in our attempt at righteousness. Even an attempt at righteousness can become arrogant. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, therefore, because of all of this, anytime you see the word therefore, you want to see what it's there for. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What does that warning mean? Well, in Revelation 3, 3, God gives a warning to the church at Sardis. He says, remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and come against you. 
Folks, that's not the nation of Israel. That's a church. That's a New Testament church. God is saying, listen, if you don't repent from your sin and turn away from it, if you don't stop, look, you know it. Remember what you've received and heard. You know the truth. So keep it. Turn away from your sinfulness. Because if you don't wake up, I'm going to come against you. Now, I don't know about you, but I find life to be very complicated. We live in a fallen world. I'm a fallen human being. I'm married to a fallen human being. I've got other little fallen human beings in my family. And life is very complicated just as it is. The last thing I need is for God to come against me. I mean, do you, you understand that? I mean, the last thing we need to complicate our lives even more is for God to say, I'm going to come against you. And especially as a church, a church is complicated enough. Now we put all these little sinners in a group together and make them love one another. That's complicated enough. But if we don't get straight with God, he says, I'm not, I'm not, he doesn't even just say, I'm just going to take, get away from, I'm not going to, I'm going to come against you. That is an active representation of him doing something uh, intentionally to come against us. Now it's a human temptation to believe arrogantly that we could just, uh, we could never give in to our sinful temptations like the nation of Israel. We'll, we'll just stop doing it, right? We'll just quit doing it. How does that work for you? <laughs> okay. I don't know. I, I, I've decided a thousand times in my life to stop sinning, and I still seem to do it. It's part of the fallen humanness that we have. But we have this idea of arrogance that when we decide it, or if we do decide it, it'll just come true. And Paul's saying, no, the opposite is true. When the apostle Peter was told by Jesus that he would deny the Savior three times before morning, Peter vehemently denied the possibility of that. He said, no way, Lord, that's not going to happen. I will die for you. That is not going to happen. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. He was arrogant in his denial and his own possible shortcomings. But the result was he did exactly what Christ said he would do. Folks, the moment we say, I'm glad I'm not like those sinners over there because I would never do that. The moment we say that, we are inviting a challenge that we may not be able to stand up to. I think as sinners, we need to just admit the fact that every single one of us in this room could commit almost anything unimaginable things if put in the right circumstance. Because the moment we say, I would never do that, we see, I mean, this is just a, this is just a common thing in our lives, isn't it? I am never going to move to that place. Guess what you wind up doing? I am never going to leave this job, really? And then God just seems to make it happen. So we have to be self-aware of our own sinful ways and our own temptations that we might recognize them when, when they start coming to us and stand against them. We must stay awake. We must stay alert. Now, we are concerned here at Fellowship of Grace for the sin of an individual that might disqualify them, but we're also concerned for sin in the church that would disqualify all of us. We have to be vigilant, folks. We have to make sure that sin, outward, blatant, continuous sin, does not enter into our midst. And we don't do that through judgment and criticism. 
We do that through encouragement and love and helping one another. But how else do we do that? What does Paul say? Well, he says, no temptation is so big that we cannot resist it with God's help. Now pay close attention. Because I think this is the key right here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. First, Paul says, every temptation is common. Listen, you aren't the first person to be tempted by whatever tempts you, and not everybody has always given into it. Okay? It's common. It's common. In fact, the scripture says that Jesus was tempted in every way. So in whatever way you're tempted, Jesus was tempted too. But of course, he was God in the flesh, but he didn't give into it. But others haven't given into it. So it's important to understand it's just common. Don't ever get this idea in your head, well, that was, a, that was just too big a thing. That was just a satanic thing, and I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, not give into it. It was just something I had to do. No, it's not. It's something we choose to do. And it says God is faithful. We overcome temptation, folks, not by relying on our own power, but on God's faithfulness, on God's faithfulness. Temptation is more powerful than our own human desire to do right, but God is more powerful still than the temptation. See, folks, God is faithful, which means you can always count on him. He always, always, always provides a way out. Now, it doesn't say he, might, he necessarily takes away the sin. You don't see that. You, or takes away the temptation, I mean. You don't see that he takes away the temptation and it just doesn't exist anymore, but it says he provides a way of escape. He always provides a way of escape. Now, I'm a visual learner, and so I, I want you to see this. It's kind of like this. You got two lanes, the two fast lanes over here are our sinful temptations, and God is offering us an off-ramp. Every single time you are tempted, God is faithful, God is true, God will always give you a way of escape if we'll just take it. The problem is, sometimes we come up to this V on the highway and we just decide to stay in the fast lanes and we don't take that off-ramp. And then we commit the very things that we said we would never do. Listen, every single time you are tempted to do anything that is not according to God's word, he provides us an off-ramp. While we can't overcome all sin and become perfect on this planet, we are always provided a way of escape. We just need to take it. Our problem is we sometimes look for a way into sin rather than a way out of it. So let's learn from this example Let's think about this passage, see that God has given us a tremendous example of his blessings, all the ways he wants to bless us, and yet an example of his judgment if our behavior dictates it. He's warning us, saying don't practice evil, don't desire something else, especially evil things more than God. He warns us not to be arrogant and say, we'll never do that. Because that is a sure way 
to be tempted beyond what you really think you can handle. But no temptation is that big. If every time we are tempted, we say to ourselves, where's the, where's the exit? How do I get out of here? How do I keep from doing this? What's, what's the way? Instead of just going, I'm not going to do it, 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 and stay in the fast lanes, because that never works. We say, okay, instead of doing this, how do I get out of here? What do I, how do I get out of this? And you take the exit ramp. Let's heed God's warning here, folks. I know this is not a very you know, fun, exciting, uplifting message, but we have to face the truth about God's word. Paul is writing this to us with God's inspiration. God is speaking this to us to warn us, to watch ourselves, to watch ourselves individually and to watch ourselves as a church. God wants to bless us. In fact, he wants to bless us more than he is blessing us. I think most of us never fulfill our potential in Christ because of this very thing. I want to be blessed by God, and I know you do too. I want to be used by God, and I believe you do too. I want you to, to be used as an individual, and I want you to be used as a collection, us as a collection, a church. So let's take an opportunity to turn away from our sinful ways, our idolatry, whatever it is, our worldliness, and ask for Christ's forgiveness praying that we have not already forfeited our usefulness and our blessing. Pray that God would not take away our blessing, this church's blessing. And I do pray specifically, God, help it not be me. And I want you to pray that too. Help it not be me to cause you to have to take your hand of blessing off of this church. Your pastors pray every week for the entire congregation and for ourselves that we would not be the, the thing that would cause God to take off his hand of blessing and his usefulness for us. You pray that for you too. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that not every passage of scripture is fun and enjoyable and encouraging and uplifting. But God, we thank you for these warnings that will uh, keep uh, us straight. Help us to even today repent of the things that we have done and are doing. God, help us to each one decide for ourselves that we are not going to be the thing that causes your hand of blessing to come off this church. We are not going to be the one. Father, help us to encourage one another, to help one another, to love one another as we grow and become a better reflection of your son, Jesus. God, help us to take these things to heart and help us to be encouraged by your faithfulness, by your mercy and your love and your patience with us. God, you are so patient with us. Thank you for your patience. Now use us as individuals and use us as a church to minister to people around us, to see this community one to Christ, to see influence from this church go out all over the world as we sponsor missionaries and ministries. God, use us in a great way, not for our honor and glory, but to make you famous in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.